0: Very good morning to all of you. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear loving Heavenly Father, as we come here this morning, we pray that your powerful word will be at work in our hearts and that we will know your presence, that we will know your Holy Spirit working in our hearts, teaching us how we must live before you and the greatness of your love for us. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. I was talking to a golfing friend just this week. And I was trying to persuade him to accept Jesus as I had been for many, many years. And he said to me, it really doesn't matter what happens when I die because I'll be going to heaven anyway. And that's because I'm a good person. I don't need anyone to help me to get to heaven because I haven't done any bad things. Now, is this statement really true? Can he really be a good person and make it to heaven without any assistance whatsoever. Now last week we ended with what many people say is the key two verses which summarize the whole of the book of Romans in chapter 1 verse 16 and 17. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. For in the gospel the righteousness of God is revealed a righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. So as we look at the book of Romans, the whole book of Romans can be summarized into those two verses, that salvation, that righteousness can only be received by faith from first to last. That means our salvation is all based on faith. But on the other hand, my friend is saying, that the only way for him to be saved is because he is a good person. Now those two positions are mutually exclusive. You can't have one and the other. They are either one and the other one is false, or the other one is false and one is true. So is salvation all about faith or salvation about works? Now today as we look at the passage in verse 18, it's connected very much with what we read in verse 16 and 17 because verse 18 is actually connected because it begins with the word for or because. So if you have an ESV translation, you see that verse 18 begins with the words because the wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the wickedness and godlessness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, the whole of what follows therefore in verse 18 today is linked to the argument that salvation is by faith alone. And the reason is because the Bible says that God's wrath is coming upon this earth. God is angry, and God is rightly angry, and He will bring punishment upon people. And He will bring punishment upon people because first and foremost, people have suppressed the truth by their wickedness. Now, to suppress the truth means to hide something or to actively bury it or push it away. To suppress something is to deny something. And what is being suppressed here is the truth about God. And I think that's where the first part of the fallacy of what my friend is saying comes out. Can you be a good person if you suppress the truth about God? So my friend, if you were to meet him, and I hope to bring him to church one day, you will find him to be a very interesting person, a nice person, a good person. He outwardly doesn't seem to have any sin or evil or wickedness in his life. But can we say that he is a good person? Can he truly be a good person if he doesn't recognize God? If I was a child, and I studied hard, if I helped the poor, if I became very rich and I gave my money to philanthropy, but I didn't acknowledge my parents, if I suppressed the truth about my parents and denied their existence and denied that they brought me into the world, could you say that I'm a good person? You cannot say I'm a good person because right from the very start, it doesn't matter how good I am in all these things, if I suppress the truth about my my parents, the people who brought me into this world, I cannot be good. And even more so if I suppress the truth of the maker of my parents, the maker of myself, I cannot be considered a good person. And the Bible then goes on to say in this very powerful argument that they are full of wickedness and godlessness since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. In verse 19, I think this is very important because the, the knowledge of God does not come about only to people with high IQs, who are perhaps only doctors, or lawyers, or PhDs, but the revelation of God is available to everyone. You don't have to be Sherlock Holmes to see it, and the Bible says that it is plain to everyone. And what is plain, it says there, in verse 20, "...for the, since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities..." His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. When we see nature, when we see the world, when we look at the mirror and we view ourselves, we see something that is beyond our comprehension. We see something that is beyond our own power to create. So when we look at the world, we see something and recognize that there must be something beyond us, something greater than us, that created these things. Because if we are mortal, and we cannot comprehend and create these things, then it must be something greater than ourselves, something divine, which created and made these things, which, which shows His power. See, I want you to think for a moment at what we take so much for granted. Just take your hand for a moment, just look at your hand for a moment and I want you to marvel at your hand. If you were to cut your hand off today or someone were to cut your hand off just for a moment, imagine if you were handless today. Even if you were as rich as the richest man in this world, you could not get your hand back. Consider a moment your vision, your eye, the capacity for you to see me or to see colors or to see yourself. If you were to have some sort of eye disease, it doesn't matter how rich you are, you cannot get your vision back. I know of a man who was a very famous architect. I think he, uh, he designed the Takashimaya building. He unfortunately is going blind and he loves to play golf. And he can't see the golf ball anymore, so he can't play golf. He is wonderfully wealthy. But he can't get his sight back. It doesn't matter how rich you are. Where can you go in this world to get your vision back? I was reading another book about the miracle of pain. You know, we often see pain as a very negative thing. Right? Who wants to have pain? Pain is something we should we seek to avoid. But this book was actually saying that pain is a wonderful creation of God, because it is through pain that you are able to 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 feel, right? Uh, 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 a thread of hair, a strand of hair in your fingers, but at the same time not hold the hammer too tight that you break your bones. That's one of the problems when you try to make an artificial hand. How do you feel the difference when you put it into fire and when you put it into water? See, it's only because God has created such a marvel of creation in our hand that we can feel pain, that we can feel heat and we know we're hurting ourselves that we are able uh, to have the the use of our hands for the the length of our life. So what the Bible says is that when we look at these things and we reflect on them, we are without excuse. Now we are without excuse because the, the power and the wonder of this world shout out to us that there is a God. Now we must make very clear that this is just general revelation. So by looking at nature, I can't really get insights into the nature of God or how to have a relationship with God. But it should prompt me to want to acknowledge God and want to find out more about God. But sinful people like ourselves, instead of seeking God, what would we do? We, we suppressed the information about God. Instead of running towards God, we run away from God And we try to ignore God. And more and more, this is the case today. So the Bible says that instead of worshipping God, what do people do? In verse 21 it says, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him. But their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. So what's happening here is the right response that we should have towards God once we see the wonder of God's creation, to see His divinity and power, is to, to run to God. To run to God to do what? To glorify God And to give thanks to God. That is the right response, the the worthy and the righteous response to God, to to glorify God and to give thanks to God. And the failure to do so is the heart of sin. Again, coming back to my friend, I I don't want to make my friend up as this, uh, you know, like the straw man for all my arguments, but I just can't help thinking about him because so much of what he says is reflected in Romans chapter 1, verse 18 onwards. You see, can you really be a good person because I do good things? You can keep the Ten Commandments, but if you do not give glory to God and you do not give thanks to God, then you are a bad person. People often think that being a good person is all about keeping the law, doing good things. But fundamentally, according to this passage, being a good person, to begin to be a good person, you need to give thanks to God and you need to give glory to God. Without that first primary beginning point, you cannot be a good person. Now, in the world that we live in, uh, there are people who exchange the worship of the glory of God and giving thanks to God for idols. Uh, Perhaps they worship humans or they worship Animals or creatures, even reptiles. I remember when I was very young, I used to go to Penang every year. I used to share with you how I used to go to Penang every year. And we used to go up to the, to the mountain to go. There was this, uh, is it turtle or is it snake temple? I can't remember. The snake temple. Or oh, turtle. Okay, we have to, we have to, you can argue about it later. But I always remember when I was young because I used to go up there and I was like, I always see all these, uh, the reptiles there and it kind of freaked me out. But I think for modern secular mankind, uh, maybe the world thinks that it's moved beyond that, the worship of reptiles and animals and human beings. But instead, it it suppresses the knowledge of God and it worships the human mind, uh, the power of science. So if you go to many bookshops today, you'll see that there are many very uh, aggressive atheist books arguing about the death of God and how we should now have the deification of science itself. Where do we find meaning in life? Well, we find it in science. But is that really true? Can we really find meaning in science? So I remember reading somewhere about how, uh, if you listen to the BBC, sometimes you read the BBC, they'll say, oh, science have discovered this thing, and therefore, because they've discovered this thing, therefore, there must be implications on our morality. So, if you look at, animal kingdom, you'll see that uh, some animals uh, practice homosexuality, and they say, oh well, because we see it in animals, therefore it is justified in us in humans. So we, we look at this thing in, 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 in the animal world, and therefore it's justified for ourselves. Or we make some scientific discovery, and therefore, we, we have to live this way. So for those of you who ha- have not uh, heard of her, there's this person called Margaret Mead, if you ever, you can google her name, and she was one of the early people who were anthropologists and she went to Samoa and she said that in Samoa they didn't practice monogamous relationships and therefore they had a very peaceful society and what not. So she was the one who said, well, maybe in society uh, sex is one of the problems that we have that leads to all these problems. All right, so where do we turn to for guidance? We turn to science and anthropologists and scientists and biologists. And I was remember reading How more and more science is putting itself up as a rival to God. So instead of worshipping God, you worship the scientist. So somebody in my Bible study group actually sent me this um, cartoon, which was quite funny, so I thought i would show it to you. Oh, can you make that bigger? You know, you put the arrow thing. Yes, that's right. So I thought it was quite amusing, so I thought I'd share it with you about how there's a Coca-Cola bottle. Okay, so how did this Coca-Cola bottle come about? Well, it must be because you know mil- over millions of years, right, all these molecules came together and they created this can. And then it also created the, the paint on the can which said Coca-Cola and then filled this can full of this sweet, syrupy liquid. And this must have come about through evolution. Right? So, the point that it's trying to make here is that When you look at a Coca-Cola can and you look at the Coca-Cola inside, you know that it's actually made by Coca-Cola, because there is complexity to it, there's purpose to it. And you can't say that it's made by evolution, and yet at the same time, we are such much more complex animals, uh, much more complex organisms than a can of Coca-Cola. But yet, we say that for ourselves, we come about through evolution. I remember listening to, uh, again, this apologist, uh, John Lennox, and you're saying that, you know, for many psychiatrists, they try to say that the desire for mankind to have a God, because actually if you go to many societies in the world, primitive societies, almost every one of them believes in a God. You can go to the deepest, darkest jungles of Africa, people believe in God. So scientists say it must be because genetically, through evolution, we have a wish of God and this John Lennon has made a good point he said actually the theory this theory is all very interesting but it doesn't prove one thing or another because it doesn't deal with the evidence at hand it's just a theory to explain why people believe in God but it doesn't actually investigate whether God is real or not and he says that this theory is something that many people accept to suppress the truth of God without actually investigating the claims of God once I accept the claim that evolution and genes makes me predisposed to believe in God, then it gives me a reason to not believe in God without actually investigating the facts. But what does God say? God says that we are foolish. It says there in verse 21-22, Their thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, and birds, and animals, and reptiles. See, it's quite interesting, because what it says here is, mankind as a whole, thinks that it is smarter when they say that there is no God, and they start worshipping all these other things. I don't know if you've actually read many atheist books, but one thing that comes out to me is the strident arrogance that is there in these books. Have you ever read Richard Dawkins? You should try to read Richard Dawkins because he is very, very strong. Uh, even Christopher Hitchens as well, also another atheist, when you read their writings, they are absolutely scathing about Christians and religion as a whole. So I remember reading Richard Dawkins, and Richard Dawkins says he doesn't like Being called an atheist because he feels that the term atheist is not a very complimentary word. So he prefers instead to be called bright. He doesn't like to be called atheist. He says he would much prefer to be called brights because he thinks that he's smarter than other people. So he's a brights. I read a a blog by another atheist blogger and he says, though, I don't like to be called atheist. He says, because You know, uh, atheism is not a growth model. So he prefers to be called a truthist because he has the truth. But the Bible says that, that these people are not brighter than other people or have more truth than other people. But instead, what does the Bible say? God says that they became fools and that they were futile in their thinking and foolish because the evidence is there before them, but they have chosen not to accept it. Now, sometimes we worry and we think that we try to evangelize our non Christian friends, but somehow they just don't believe. And if only we had the right argument, you know, if we only found the right argument, that would be the key to open their hearts and they would believe in God. But if you look very closely at the passage, you see that part of the problem of Suppressing the truth about God is that it's not just an intellectual problem, it is a heart problem. It is a heart problem. What it says here, if you look very carefully, it says their foolish hearts were darkened. Now, this word hearts here is the same word in Matthew chapter 15, which you can see up here, which is the word cardia. Okay, I'm sure for those of you who are medically trained, you know what cardia is, right? The heart. Okay. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony and slander. So the problem is not singularly a mental one. It is a matter of the heart, a matter of the will. When, I, when people choose to suppress the knowledge of God, it's not just because they can't understand or they don't want to seek, but it's because their hearts are darkened. I remember once I tried to evangelize a non-Christian and I met up with this person I kept answering their questions you know I gave them books to read then we discussed more and more then over time I asked them I said have I answered all your questions yet? do you have any more questions? and I realized that actually the questions were just an excuse because I could have answered every question that this person had and they could have all the information that I could give them but the answer would still be no they would still not believe in God. Not because they couldn't understand or they weren't convinced, but just because they didn't want to. This person believed the Bible to be true, that Jesus rose from the dead, but he still didn't want to become a Christian. So it's not just a heart problem, uh, it's a mind problem, it's a heart problem. It's interesting because I've got a few quotes here by these uh, atheists and you can see that by just what they say. So there's a uh, Physicist Victor Stenger says, If God does exist, I personally want nothing to do with him. Uh, philosopher Thomas Nagel said, I want atheism to be true. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. So these people are not coming to God with. Uh, uh, an open mind, a sincere seeking, they're coming to God because they want to disprove God. Their hearts are really darkened against God. So what happens next? Well, in verse 24 to verse 28, we find something very shocking because it says, Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. for their error. And then in verse 28 it says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. Now, why this is shocking is because of a few repeated phrases. Okay, so if you look up here, what is the phrase that keeps being repeated? It says that therefore God gave them over. He gave them over. He gave them over. Now this is very important because it seems as if God allows them and has an active part in giving them over into sin, in giving them over into the sinful things that their darkened hearts want to have. It seems as if God's judgment and God's wrath isn't just taking place at the last day, but He is giving them over into this sin now as part of His wrath. Now, this is something which is very shocking because we can understand people suppressing the knowledge of God, exchanging the worship of God for other things, but we actually see that God actively here gives people over into their sin. The first sin that he gives them over to is a sin of sexual morality. The first giving over in verse twenty-four. Now, for many people, they think as what the, some other people, as you will see when I put up here, say they think of sexual morality as liberation—liberation liberation from the morality of God, from the from the tight, you know, uh, bind or the restrictions of God. I've got lots of sexual freedom now. But what she says is different when. When, when you go into sexual liberation or sexual freedom, it's actually Him giving you over into sin itself as part of His punishment. Now we can understand that to be true, but then what about the next part in verse 26, because it says, God gave them over then to shameful lusts, where even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones, and even men did so themselves. Now, I want you to pay very close attention here because when we look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18 onwards, we think of the homosexuality as like the centerpiece of the signs in which God gives people over. But actually, it seems to be more development where the first giving over is to sexual morality as a whole. All sex outside of marriage. Then, in verse 26, he seems to then focus on one element of sexual morality, which is homosexuality. Now why is that? Why does God bring up verse 26? Because obviously verse 24 would have covered verse 26. Sexual morality would have covered homosexuality, which is a subset of sexual morality. Why bother with homosexuality? Why bother here with this? I think that, why it is, is very important because when you look at the language, it seems as if homosexuality is a reflection of the inversion of the wrong worship of God. Okay, let me show you why. Let's look at the words carefully, okay? So if you look at the next slide, the word exchange keeps coming up in this passage. If you pay attention, you'll notice hey, it keeps coming up. Right? The word exchange keeps coming up. So as people exchange the worship of God with reptiles and animals and people, there is an inversion, right? There is an unnaturalness to it. We exchange what is natural for unnatural in the spiritual realm. So God says here then, He will give people over to an overturning or an inversion or exchange of what is natural sexually to what is unnatural sexually. And how we see that is like, instead of worshipping the highest being, you now worship the lowest being, which is the snakes and the reptiles, right? So in the same way, in the sexual realm, because you fail to do what is right spiritually, God gives you over into doing what is unnatural in the physical and sexual realm. Now the reason why I say this is because, again, the next slide, it's very You don't see it in the English, but if you see in the original language, the word man and woman in Greek, you can use different words. Uh, in English, we only have man and woman. In Chinese, I think you only have man and woman. That's all right. But in the Greek, you have different words for man and woman. You can have different words. So if you look at other parts of the Bible, when you see the word man, it can also mean husband. When you see the word woman, it can also mean wife. But here, when you actually see the words man and woman, it, it's actually looking back towards the same words which are being used in the book of Genesis. So what's actually being in view here is that men and women, as they were created in Genesis, they are being inverted in terms of their sexual relations. And I think that this is, for us, as we read the Bible, a sign in which God gives people over because they've chosen to exchange what is natural in the worship world to exchange what is natural for the unnatural in the sexual world. Now, I don't want to spend too long on this passage, <clears throat> but it's very important to, to be very, very clear in our minds that what is on view here is homosexuality and lesbianism. Uh, you will find many writers, you can even read Time magazine, where people will argue that this passage is not about homosexuality and lesbianism, but it's about either prostitution or pedophilia, you know, having sex with children, or some very limited form of temple sexuality. But the passage itself is not restricted like that because it's a subset of sexual immorality, first up. And also, because in terms of pedophilia, prostitution, it's not about women and women, and men and men, usually pedophilia is men and boys, right? prostitution is men and women. So when it talks about women and women exchanging natural relations, and men and men exchanging natural relations, we're talking about the subset of homosexuality. So don't allow, I guess, people to limit what this passage is saying. It is homosexuality and lesbianism. Is not prostitution, pedophilia, or some sort of temple sexuality, okay, this is what it is. Some other people, uh, I remember reading the president of the Harvard Divinity School, try to argue that oh, it's about people who are naturally heterosexual who become unnaturally homosexual. Now again that doesn't hold water in this passage because these are psychological terms, natural and unnatural. But as we see, when we go back to Genesis, what is really being in view here is the overturning of the creation mandate, where men and women were made to become one. That is what is unnatural about it. Not because I feel like I'm homosexual, I feel like I'm heterosexual. It's not about me as an individual feeling what I feel, it's about the whole act itself that is against the natural order of creation. Now, we can see that this is true. When you deny God and you deny God and throw off the moral framework that God gives you, you will go gradually and gradually more into more forms of sexual deviancy. So, if you read the quote of uh, some quite famous people again, they're very honest in what they believe, right? So this guy is a writer. Um, He's the brother of Thomas uh, Huxley, you know, the one who wrote The Brave New World. You need to read more books if you haven't read the ones. Okay. okay, he said, I had motives for not wanting the world to have meaning. Uh, meaning. Consequently, I assumed that it had none and was able to, without difficulty to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, as no doubt for most of my contemporaries, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation. The liberation we desired was Liberation from a certain system of morality. We objected to the morality because it interfered with our sexual freedom. Again, uh, Bertrand Russell, in this book, who wrote Why I Am Not a Christian, said, The worst feature of the Christian religion is its attitude towards sex. So, when you throw off God, and you suppress God, and you worship other things, including man then God gives you over into what is very naturally what you want to do, which is sexual freedom and sexual deviancy. And it's so sad because even for Christians, once you run away from God and you suppress God in this way, uh, you will also become like this. I had someone who was in my Bible study group many years ago, and, and this person struggled with their homosexual feelings. And he shared it with me. And for many years he was successful, Uh, well not many years, sorry, for that year that I knew him, he was in university, he was successful in terms of denying himself. But the moment he turned away from God and stopped coming to church and Bible study, he threw himself fully into the homosexual lifestyle. Multiple partners, going to spas, doing all sorts of things. I remember meeting up with him several months after he'd given up coming to church. And it's almost as if his life was just, you know, one minute he was a serious Christian, next minute he was just totally unrecognizable. And because he ignored God, God gave him over and at the same time he chose uh, to, to, to give himself over to sin. Which was very sad for me because I'd known him for many years. But God goes on to say something very troubling for us because in verse 28 it says, Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice. They are gossips slanderous, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, boastful. They invade ways of doing evil, they disobey parents, they have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. Now this is a very troubling passage for us because for the original reader, as for ourselves, when we read this and we read of people doing sexual morality, we think, terrible people. Those are all the people outside the walls of BDPC. Okay, people indulge in all these homosexual practices. Ah, those are terrible people. Those are all the people, again, outside the walls of BDPC. All right, maybe they're found in, uh, in Geylang or whatever. But, when we then turn to this passage, we find a whole list of things that that we, if we are serious, if we spend even a minute contemplating, are guilty of. So think about the list that I g- is given here. Okay, so all these things are not against the law of Singapore, but in God's eyes, to gossip—oh, I didn't put gossip there, but gossip was over here. Gossiping is just as bad and just as godless and depraved and evil as homosexuality and sexual morality. So think about that for a moment. Think about the last few weeks at work, you know, where you've been at the water cooler, talking about people, or when you've been you know, you know, chatting with uh, you know, your friends about other things, or where you've been envious, you know, when your colleague gets a promotion or somebody bought a new watch or a car, or a flat or a house, or, you know, where you've been secretly gleeful in your heart where someone else has done badly. All of us have experienced that before. And I think the problem is, and this is the way I think God and Paul wants it to work, is as you read this passage, you are increasingly saying, yes, 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 these are terrible people. Then you realize that actually I am a terrible person. And I think why we recognize that why it's actually to be created like that for us is because it's supposed to come back again to chapter 1, verse 16 and 17. It's to force us back to see that we need faith just as much as the sexually immoral. We need faith just as much as the homosexual. We need faith just as much as the person who suppresses the knowledge of God. Because even though we have all these things we are still sinful. We still do evil, wicked and depraved things in God's eyes. We are to feel the weight of our sin before God. I began by saying that the friend of mine told me that just last week that he doesn't need Jesus because he believes that he will go to heaven because he is a good person. The whole point of today's passage is to teach us that there are no good people. There are no good people good enough to go to heaven by themselves. In God's eyes, whether you gossip, whether you're homosexual, whether you take part you know, in all sorts of sexual depravity, whether you slander someone, whether you have lust, whether you have gossip, it is all the same. It is wicked and depraved and you are without excuse just as everybody else. And therefore, each and every one of us here really needs to continue to remember that we are depraved sinners in need of a saving God. And we can only get that through Jesus Christ and believing in Him. The world is constantly, I'm surprisingly, seeing over and over again, thinking how good they are. So last week, I went to... um, Oh, two weeks ago, on a Sunday, that's right, we went to a, a, a gathering of some friends. And a friend of mine was telling me how he'd been trying to evangelize his father for decades. And one day his father, who likes to walk around by himself because uh, his wife has passed away, happened to come across a crowd of people. So you, 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 after I give this situation, you'll know what I'm talking about, right? He comes, he's in the shopping mall and he comes across a crowd of people lining up. So, being old and retired and having nothing to do, he lined up so he doesn't know what he's doing, he's just lining up. He finds himself in an auditorium and it's a church service. Okay. And then, after the church service, surprisingly, he comes home and he tells my friend what a great time he had. And he said, Oh, you know what I learned about God. We need all need God and we all need to have faith and you know God's grace and mercy towards us. Then he says, you all should go. You all should go to this church. You all should listen to this guy. He's really good. Then he said, that my friend was like, getting really hopeful and thinking, that's fantastic. Somehow, my father has been evangelized by joining this queue and going to this church. But then his father says, no, 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 not me. All of you need to go, but I don't need to go. You know why? Because I'm not a sinner. <laughs> right? You're all sinners except me. And that's the the amazing thing, that people can think that they are not sinners, but everybody else is. And that's what this passage is all about. It's trying to tell us over and over again that we are no better than the person who we think is a sexual deviant, the person who suppresses the truth, the person who is a homosexual, the person who does all these things. We are, in God's eyes, just as depraved. I want to end with one last illustration. I remember reading the the newspaper in Australia. There's a very busy street, and there is a pub. A pub is a place, you know, the drinking place, which faces a church. So, in uh, in Australia, a lot of churches have a big notice board, uh, right smack in front. Usually, there's a lawn, there's a notice board which, like, has just random messages there, like you know, Easter service coming, Christmas service, whatever. And then the pub, usually outside the pub, sometimes they also have these signs, like happy hour, time, how much the price is. So apparently the pub owner and the pastor seem to get along quite well, and they kind of put these messages as an ongoing conversation across the road. So this pub had this sign which says, this pub is for drinkers. So then the pastor put a sign outside his church which said, this church is for sinners. And that's the truth. The church is made out of sinners who have all been forgiven because we have faith in Jesus. We are not good people. We're not better than the people outside. We are all, in God's eyes, just as sinful as the people outside. And we all need faith just as much. So my prayer for all of us today is to rely on Jesus and to have faith on Him alone. We cannot contribute even one iota to our salvation. It is all done by Jesus and we need to have faith in Him. Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, teach me and teach us to be wise. Teach us not to be fools. Do not let our hearts be darkened. Help us to see that the wicked man or woman is not the person outside, but really it is ourselves. We are terrible sinners. Without your power of salvation, without your Holy Spirit working in us, we would be lost. Dear Father, help us to see that each and every one of us here needs Jesus to rescue us. All of us need your gift of righteousness. Help us to see how unable we are to save ourselves and to rely only on faith in Jesus Christ from first to last. So that we may be truly saved and know eternal life. And we pray for all these things in Jesus Christ. Amen.